listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm going to be interviewing biophysicist Mark DeWitt. We'll be talking about gene editing, both its promise and its perils, as well as his work here at the Innovative Genomics Initiative Lab at the La Kaxing Center for Genomic Engineering on the UC Berkeley campus. Welcome to the program, Mark. Um, thanks for having me. You're a biophysicist, a postdoc researcher at the Innovative Genomics Initiative here on the UC Berkeley campus at the La Kaxing Center for Genomic Engineering. Mm-hmm. And you're doing some exciting work on many things, and we're going to get into what you're doing. But before we do that, I want to talk about the golden age of gene editing Mm -hmm. and talk about some of the fundamental parts of that so that our listeners who are not scientists or biophysicists can understand what we're talking about. Here's UC Berkeley's very own Professor Jennifer Doudna. A few years ago, with my colleague Emmanuel Charpentier, I invented a new technology for editing genomes. It's called CRISPR-Cas9. The CRISPR technology allows scientists to make changes to the DNA in cells that could allow us to cure genetic disease. The CRISPR technology came about through a basic research project that was aimed at discovering how bacteria fight viral infections. Bacteria have to deal with viruses in their environment, and we can think about a viral infection like a ticking time bomb. A bacterium has only a few minutes to diffuse the bomb before it gets destroyed. So many bacteria have in their cells an adaptive immune system called CRISPR that allows them to detect viral DNA and destroy it. Part of the CRISPR system is a protein called Cas9 that's able to seek out and cut and eventually degrade uh, viral DNA in a specific way. And it was through our research to understand the activity of this protein Cas9 that we realized that we could harness its function as a genetic engineering technology, a way for scientists to delete or insert specific bits of DNA into cells with incredible precision. The CRISPR technology has already been used to change the DNA in the cells of mice and monkeys, other organisms as well. Chinese scientists showed recently that they could even use the CRISPR technology to change genes in human embryos. And scientists in Philadelphia showed they could use CRISPR to remove the DNA of an an integrated HIV virus from infected human cells. Okay, Mark, let's get a little bit more into this gene editing. You can imagine that our genome is essentially like a document that has three billion letters. Those are the different bases in the DNA that makes up our genome, right? Uh, 20,000 genes, 3 billion characters, which I think is about a million pages. And if it was in a Word document, I think that would be about 3 gigabytes of data, right? So it's just this one really long document. And gene editing is quite simply the ability to edit that document. It's like a cut-and-paste system, right? And a global <clears throat> global positioning system. <laughs> yeah. What gene editing lets you do is you can now go into this document, and before all we could do is really read it. We could just know what was in it. But now with with gene editing, we have the whole edit menu, right? So we can go to a a location within the genome. We can cut out a sequence that we want to remove. And then we can paste in a new sequence. 
So, okay. for example, if you have a, a, a gene uh, with a disease-causing mutation in it, you can cut that disease-causing mutation out and then paste in a healthy gene. Right. Okay, so it's, it's kind of two parts, right? You know, you've got the, the CRISPR, okay, and that stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Yeah, it's, a pretty, it's quite a mouthful. Basically, what happens is that the bacteria would store this array of short sequences. That's the CRISPR array. And those sequences would match the sequences of the invading virus, viral DNA. So that if it ever came again, it if would recognize it? Back, yeah, if the virus ever came back, it would be like, oh, I know you. And then it would, and the way that it recognizes the invading DNA from its own DNA is because if it's in this CRISPR array, it gets put onto the Cas9 nuclease, and the nuclease goes to the, find the invading DNA and chops it up. But it won't chop up your own DNA because you don't have any of that sequence. You provide a guide. You have the Cas9 nuclease, and then you provide a guide, which is like a little... It's an RNA guide. It's an RNA guide. Yeah, we do it, we do it with RNA. Other people can use RNA that's transcribed inside the cell. We actually provide the RNA outside the cell and put it right on the Cas9. So RNA is a sequence just like DNA. The sequence of the RNA can match a piece of DNA somewhere in the genome. So when you provide the guide and the Cas9 at the same time, they get together and they go find the part of the genome that matches the sequence of the guide. So the guide is literally a guide. It's so you can here. program the guide to tell it where to go. Exactly. So okay. it's very, very easy to, to construct different sgRNAs, different guide RNAs to direct Cas9 to different places. And in fact, that's a major advantage of CRISPR-Cas9 technology over other gene editing technologies where they're not so easily repurposed to go after different targets. We've been doing gene editing for, I think, about 10 years. In the old days, you know, yeah, you'd have to do a lot of protein engineering. You'd have to synthesize a lot of different constructs, you know, different plasmids to, to, to make different reagents, uh, send them into cells, and then pick the best one. It takes a lot of work, maybe a whole team of people, right, um, if you're working at a company that have, like, a whole team of people that do just protein engineering. Whereas with Cas9, if I want to make a Cas9 reagent that targets anywhere in the genome, I essentially order, I can order a template to make the RNA by typing it into the computer. A company sends it to me a day later. I can make, you know, 10 different targets, hundreds of targets, right? People have done thousands or hundreds of thousands at once. And then take that, make the RNA in my lab, mix that with the protein, and then I in introduce it into cells. And generally, almost all the cells get at it, or they at least get the cut. The turnaround is, I mean, I have my undergrads doing it. I have visiting students doing it. I do it all the time. What kind of oversight can anybody, like I could recreate the polio virus? I, I can't just order a huge chunk of DNA that is big enough to encode an entire virus. But are there other regulations on who can order what? There are for sequences that contain toxins or infectious particles. Like the polio or something like that. For example, like that. polio okay. virus. And you're not allowed to order those synthetically. Or if you are, you have, you have to demonstrate that you have the qualifications to work with that kind of genetic material. But, you know, in our case, we're going after genomes that are already there. So it's like your genome doesn't have any, you know, infectious particles in it. There's nothing contained in what we order that actually causes a disease. Okay. We're, we're just yeah. going after diseased genes that are yeah. already there. Okay. So in some senses, it's actually much safer because there's no information that we're providing to the cells that could cause a disease unless we, you know, really want it to. Whereas, for example, uh, the older version of gene therapy was to do viral delivery of genes. And so since you're working with viruses, there's always risk of side effects. Mm -hmm. Even though the viruses are essentially de-weaponized, there's still issues of where it puts the DNA, whether it could evolve into a different type of virus, these kinds of things. Okay. You know who Hank Greeley is at Stanford Law School? Oh, that sounds familiar. Okay. He, he direct, he's the director of the Center for Law and Biosciences down there, mm -hmm. and he calls uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 the Model T 
of bioscience. I guess what he's thinking is the Model T was not the first car or even the first car to be manufactured. And just as that, CRISPR-Cas9 is not the first gene editing technology. We've had it for some time. But it is the it is the most robust and it's the easiest to work with. It's the one that everybody is out getting and trying and using. I mean, not people that not just people that specialize in gene in, in genomics or genetics, but really everybody. And yeah, in that sense, it is the Model T. It's the first it's the first version of this technology that everyone can use. What is the goal of it? Right off the bat, it has completely changed the way that we do basic research. So, as I mentioned, it's very easy to work with. Now, even if you're not a specialist in gene editing. But you have a you know a favorite gene that you like to you want to characterize. You can target and manipulate that gene in human cells with such ease that you don't have to be a specialist, and and you can target many 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 targets at once. And so you in in other words, like a, a goal of eradicating a certain disease that's heritable. Mm-hmm. Well, so first this is used in basic research, and then the other potential application for CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, early gene editing in general, and this is indeed already sort of underway is um, for gene therapy. As I mentioned, you know, you could have a genetic disease and then in some part of your body, and then we can synthesize and inject reagents that will correct that mutation, fix the broken gene. Instead of, in the past, we've been able to introduce genes into tissues, but only, but we can't fix a broken gene. Now we can actually go to the broken gene and replace it with healthy sequence. Okay, Mark. Let's break away for a minute and tell our audience they're listening to Method to the Madness here on KALX Berkeley. Mark DeWitt is a postdoc over at the Innovative Genomics Initiative at La Caching Center for Genomic Engineering here at UC Berkeley. It sounds like you can do it one of two ways. You can go in and, and fix an individual's broken gene system, or you can go in and correct it in embryonically, and then it affects generations later down the road. Potentially, that's called germline editing, and that's where you're editing the human germline. So that means that you create a heritable mutation in an embryo or probably a uh, fertilized embryo. Once you create that mutation or once you make that change, you know, that in, that embryo will be implanted into a mother, she'll the, the baby will grow up, they'll have that change and then that that kid will pass on that that change to their kids. Most therapeutic applications of gene editing aren't really focused on that. Instead, we're really focused on, and at the IGI, we're only focused on, you know, editing healthy adults, or sorry, adult patients. So it's just about the individual. Yeah, and so in that case, when we make the edit, it's not transmitted to their progeny. So if you have a disease of your, so for example, I study sickle cell disease. If I correct the sickle cell mutation inside your bone marrow, your bone marrow will be corrected and it'll be fixed, but your germline, your eggs or your sperm will not. And we don't want it to be, right? Because didn't it arise out of a resistance to malaria thousands of years ago? To me, that's the issue of going after a germline. You don't know. Yeah, which raises the possibility that there could be unintended consequences of introducing things, in, of introducing genetic alterations into the human germline. And yeah. that's absolutely true. And that's one reason why I think that Especially at this stage, it is just way too premature to undergo that kind, to undertake that kind of research. The other issue is that it cuts at the place you tell it to almost all the time, but sometimes it cuts other places. That's called off-target cutting. So it's not on your target; it's somewhere else. It's off your target. How often? So, do, what's the success rate usually? The, the frequency of off-target cutting is it depends on the application. It's usually on the order of one percent or less. Oh, that's so not too bad. Yeah, but if you have four trillion cells a substantial number of cells in a gene-edited individual. So if 
one of those off-target cuts causes a nasty side effect, like, for example, it knocks out a gene that's supposed to protect your cells from cancer, then you could, all it takes is one cell to be edited, to be edited in that manner, this unintended manner, to cause the cancer. Weren't you in a paper recently, I think, Nature Biotechnology, where mm -hmm. you guys came up with a bubble technique that avoids cutting? Yes. Yeah, so one way to avoid off-target cutting is to just don't cut at all. What we found in that paper was is that if you use a, a Cas9 that doesn't cut, it simply can't cut at all. It still creates a structure, DNA protein structure, that is accessible to the replacement sequence you're trying to provide. It's not nearly efficient enough to really drive the kinds of levels of editing that would be relevant. You can think of it as DNA has two strands, the famous double helix. What we found is, is that Cas9 goes and pries open those two strands and clamps really hard on one of the strands. But then the other strand is essentially released and is free. And so if you provide a sequence of DNA that binds to that strand, it will get incorporated. Now you've opened it up, you can stick stuff onto it. The advantage of that technique is that you get no, is that since there's no cutting, the chances of off-target activity are vastly reduced. Are you primarily working on sickle cell? Mm-hmm. So sickle cell disease is a disease of your red blood cells. And, you know, we've known about the genetics and the molecular basis of the disease for almost 70 years. I mean, it's one of the oldest, it's the oldest genetic disease that we know about. And it was the first genetic disease to truly be characterized. I mean, right around the time we discovered the structure of DNA, we were already figuring out how sickle cell works. Right, and it's a defect in only one gene, which is very different from a lot of other diseases. Exactly. So we call that monogenetic versus polygenetic. It's a monogenetic disease and that it has exactly one cause. And in fact, that's all the way down to the molecular level. There is a single letter or a single base pair change in your genome that causes the disease. And so that change is in this gene called hemoglobin beta, which is one of the two proteins that make up hemoglobin, which is what makes your red blood cells red. It's what carries oxygen you know, from your lungs to the rest of your tissues. It's all going through this hemoglobin protein. Hemoglobin protein that has this sickle cell mutation will aggregate inside the cells, will form these long, these big clumps inside your red blood cells. And these clumps cause the cells to become deformed and adopt that, that this characteristic sickle crescent cell shape. Moon. Yeah. yeah, it's more like a crescent moon. I mean, we're not farmers anymore, so I figured yeah. maybe we should update <laughs> the language. But, but yeah, shaped like a crescent moon or a sickle. These sickle RBCs, well, first off, they're not as effective at carrying oxygen, so you have anemia, but also they can clog blood vessels. And like your capillaries, they won't fit in your capillaries very well. And that can damage the capillaries and also can lead to these crises where your blood vessels get clogged, so it causes an increased risk of stroke and pulmonary hypertension. And also the damage to your blood vessels could cause organ failure. So it's a progressive disease in the sense that individuals in, in, in countries with developed health systems like the United States, their symptoms aren't very severe and they're very manageable for the first few years of life. But then as they get older and older and older, um, increasingly severe symptoms will manifest. And ultimately, it leads to something like a 25 to 30-year decrement in lifespan. And it's an inherited disease. It's an inherited disease. And we have two copies of every gene. Right? Individuals that have one copy of this, of this mutation, so they have a mutated gene and a healthy gene, are called carriers. And they also have this clinical presentation that's called sickle cell trait. And individuals with sickle cell trait are generally healthy and also have some resistance to malaria. And that's how, the, that's how this mutation is maintained in the populations, in, in populations in malarial regions, to sub-Saharan Africa and southern India, where the mutation first arose. The United States is not a malarial country. 
But of course, we have a large minority of African Americans whose genetic heritage is from sub-Saharan Africa, is from these regions. And that's why sickle cell disease, which is when you have both of your genes have the mutation, in America is found almost entirely in the African American population. So about 100,000 Americans, again, almost all African American, have the disease in the country as a whole, and I think 10,000 in California. So it's actually quite a lot of people. How close are you to a cure? I'd like to think we're pretty close. We, we, we haven't moved towards the clinic yet. I'm hoping that one of us will be able to start trials within the next two or three years. But there are other strategies for treating sickle cell disease that are more indirect that are already in clinical trials using gene editing. How are those different from what you're doing? or our approach at IGI, is to directly correct the mutation. So we know exactly where the mutation is, and we've known it for 70 years. But as I mentioned, just because you know where something is in the Word document doesn't mean you could fix it until now. What our approach is, is to make a cut at the mutation and then supply replacement sequence. The replacement sequence is a short piece of DNA. So in order to cause a lasting alteration to, your, to the genetics of your blood cells, we actually have to edit your bone marrow cells. So we take bone marrow cells from patients that have sickle cell disease, and then we, this is all in the lab, so we're doing this all which is called ex vivo, or in the lab. We cut at the, mutate, at the mutated region using Cas9, and then we supply a short piece of DNA that has the corrected sequence in it. So it just doesn't have And then you just let it grow. Yeah, and so that will get incorporated in some fraction of the cells. We generally get about 20 to 30% in in vitro. Then you let the cells grow. Then we just analyze them. So we'll differentiate them into red blood cells and see if they still have sickling properties. We'll look at their their gene expression, um, viability, all sorts of, you know, in vitro endpoints. The other thing we do is that we will edit the cells and inject them into a mouse carrier where the cells will live for months and months and months and then take the cells out of the mouse four months later to see if they still have enough editing to cure the disease. And so none of this goes back into people. Now, the way it would eventually work, if you actually were doing this in a clinical setting, is that you would take a fraction of a patient, of a sickle patient's bone marrow, you would correct it using the same exact technique that we're using, but at a much, much larger scale. Like, we're doing 100,000 to a million cells. You'd be doing more like a billion cells. You would correct the cells, culture them for a day or two in an incubator, and then pull them back together and reinfuse them into the patient. Now, meanwhile, you would be ablating the patient's bone marrow using chemotherapy. Oh, or, so you can't avoid that. No. What we're hoping is is that if the editing is efficient enough, you don't have to completely ablate the bone marrow. So you don't you can use a lighter course of chemotherapy, but you still have to use a certain amount of chemotherapy to get rid of all the remaining uncorrected bone marrow. We just don't have the ability to, to correct that many cells at once. Okay. Um, it's just the scale is not practical. So most um, applications for <laughs> now for gene editing or gene therapy in general, whether using viruses or, or CRISPR-Cas9 or anything else, uh, they generally do this chemotherapy step. There are many, many groups working on non-invasive methods to do gene editing. So one is to inject a virus that contains all the stuff you need to make the edit into straight into the compartment that you're trying to treat. So in this case, it would be the, you inject the reagent into the bone marrow, which is painful, but it's a lot better than chemotherapy, right? Virus is sort of nature's oldest nanoparticle. It's very good at finding cells and putting stuff inside of them. I think we can do better. We can engineer synthetic particles that can do all the same things. They can find the target cell, in this case a bone marrow stem cell, the cell that leads to all of your other blood cells. And they can find them, and then they can inject all the reagents into that cell specifically, and they'll go in and make the edit while the bone marrow cells are still inside your bones. Um, And that's called in vivo gene editing. 
And that's still very, very much in the early stages. But, you know, whether using a viral technique or a nanoparticle technique, you know, from what I've seen in the literature, it's probably only a matter of time. It could be 20 years. It could be 30 years. But, you know, it's only a matter of time. That seems like a long time to me. Well, I mean, in medical, biomedical terms, that's pretty short. I know. <laughs> it just, you know, when you read the articles, I mean, this stuff is all over the media now. And it just yeah. sounds so exciting, like in a couple of years, everything's going to be cured. <laughs> These technologies take a very, very, very long time to perfect and try and then get through FDA approval and so on and so forth. A lot of that is just that it takes a lot of time to iron out all of the kinks in, in biotechnology. And that's here in the United States. But what about in other countries? Well, in developed countries, they still don't, they still don't exactly move very quickly. First off, it's hard to prove efficacy sometimes. It's hard to show that your treatment is actually being effective. And you need to try it on a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of different settings for a whole bunch of reasons. And that's just never not going to be really expensive. Mm -hmm. To get the numbers you need to show that something's effective, whether you're the FDA or anybody else, it's a very expensive process. Getting enough statistical power to do that, you're still talking thousands or thousands of people that you have to test it on. And the process is lengthy and expensive. But, you know, in my opinion, I think that's it's all well and good that we have that level of oversight. But it does oh, mean so that things too. take years to really come to fruition. Okay. And uh, maybe maybe gene editing might be a little quicker. There's a lot of very specific problems associated with viral techniques that hopefully we won't have for our approach. I wouldn't be surprised if it took another five or ten years to really get all the get all the kinks ironed out. So down the road, what are some of the goals of this research? Monogenetic diseases like sickle cell. The second goal is polygenetic diseases. So this is sort of more of a pie-in-the-sky idea here. We're just beginning to uncover that there are significant genetic contributions to non-genetic diseases, to the chances of coming down with a non-genetic disease. And I'm thinking specifically about Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And so we found that there are certain mutations that we're not exactly sure why. There are certain mutations that um, appear to increase your susceptibility to the disease or decrease your susceptibility to the disease. And so you, that provides a handle for researchers to determine whether or not there is a sort of silver bullet genetic solution to actually curing this disease so that the, the patients with these mutations or individuals with these mutations have almost no chance of getting Alzheimer's. Does that mean if I take a person who is um, coming down with or starting to show signs of Alzheimer's or is at a high risk of Alzheimer's and I introduce this mutation into their, you know, into their tissues, you know, would that cure the disease? Would that essentially short circuit would that beat out whatever factors are making them get the disease by providing a different mutation entirely? How do you make that mutation in cells? Well, you should use gene editing. And then make the mutation and then see if all things being equal, that mutation alone can confer resistance to the Alzheimer's phenotype. That'd be pretty exciting. It, it is very exciting. Yeah. So I really think that, I guess as a gene editor or as a a hammer looking for a nail, there are a lot more nails, especially in America, to develop health system that are non-genetic diseases. Are you from California? No, I'm from Boston. Where did you go undergrad? Um, I went to undergrad at this small liberal arts college in Portland called Reed College. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating place. Some enormous percentage of Reed College graduates go on to get PhDs. And so after I finished at Reed, I was there for a couple of years and I came down here to get my PhD. I stayed on for my postdoc. Now, my PhD was in something completely different than what I do What now. was it in? Biophysics. And specifically, I studied um, these proteins that carry materials around your cells called motor proteins. My entire PhD was, you imagine a bunch of white dots on a computer screen moving across the screen like in a straight line. That's what I did. I looked at these dots, and I looked at how fast they're moving. And so I did that for about seven years. And then 
I just, you know, went to this seminar here, actually, the first rewriting genome seminar. It was a, it was a seminar organized by Jennifer Doudna, um, and it had all of the top investigators in gene editing at the time. So I went to the seminar. I was just blown away. I was like, this is so cool. This is the coolest thing ever, right? Like, I have to do this. I emailed Jennifer, who is in my building, my old building, Stanley Hall, up the hill from here. I'd heard that she was trying to set up this this organiza- this um, initiative to explore the applications of CRISPR-Cas9, whereas her lab is focused on the, the core technology itself, making the technology better. We would be taking those kinds of innovations and the innovations of others and using it to find applications, right? And so I was more interested in that, partly strategically thinking, you know, we're going to get past the developing the technology part pretty soon, but we're going to be exploring applications for hopefully the rest of our careers. So, you know, I thought that was a good decision for a lot of reasons. And so I talked to Jennifer and she said, oh yeah, like, uh, I'm doing it. We need postdocs. <laughs> she put me in touch with Jacob Korn, who's the director of IGI, who hadn't formally joined yet. But and IGI is again? The Innovative Genomics Initiative. The research lab is about 15 people. It's going to get a little bit bigger. And then, but IGI does lots of other stuff. IGI also does uh, some outreach. The most significant thing we've done yet is we host a workshop, so we invite scientists from you know, all around the community, ideally scientists that don't work in the field of gene editing but want to try it out. Not just scientists or doctors, but also you know, policymakers. And- there is a reason to make sure that it stays in the right hands. Yes, there is. Does and- anything scare you about it at all? Um, I mean, you're right in the heart of it. You know, you think of bad actors and things like that. Although, again, whether we're happy about it or not, humanity has invented a whole host of really dangerous, bad things, from nuclear weapons to infectious agents to chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction. And, and you know, we're all still here. <laughs> it's, I guess what I mean, should there be any controls on the use of the technology for research compared to other technologies? Like, I don't think so. Should we be very careful about, well, what if someone wanted to do something not so good with this method that I'm outlining and publishing in a paper, right? I mean, yes, we should. And that's exactly why we, I think, should be very careful about germline editing and again, that's why at IGI we're really focused on more traditional therapeutic editing. Yeah, you're lucky no that real... Jennifer is a big part of that because, you know, she is a vocal person about mm-hmm. the ethics involved. Here's a short segment from a TED Talk that she gave recently. Together with my colleagues, I've called for a global conversation about the technology that I co-invented so that we can consider all of the ethical and societal implications. Imagine that we could try to engineer humans that have enhanced properties, such as stronger bones or less susceptibility to cardiovascular disease, a different eye color or uh, to be taller, designer humans, if you will. Right now, the genetic information to understand what types of genes would give rise to these traits are mostly not known. But it's important to know that the CRISPR technology gives us a tool to make such changes once that knowledge becomes available. This raises a number of ethical questions that we have to to carefully consider. This is why I and my colleagues have called for a global pause in any clinical application of the CRISPR technology in human embryos to give us time to really consider all of the the various implications of, of doing so. This is no longer science fiction. Genome engineered animals and plants are happening right now. And this puts in front of all of us a huge responsibility to consider carefully both the unintended consequences as well as the intended impacts 
of a scientific breakthrough. So, Mark, what would you like to see happen in this space in the near future? Something I'm thinking about a lot lately is the this idea of personalized gene editing. You can imagine a world in which you go into the doctor, they sequence your genome, they see if there's anything that needs fixing, and then they put it in order for the reagent that can be synthesized custom to whatever specification, so it can go into whatever organ you want whatever cell type you want, and program any genetic change you want based on your own genetic sequence. You then go into the doctor's office, and they put something into your arm, and they infuse you with that reagent, and then it starts to make the change. Certainly, our approach with sickle cell points in that direction. The reagents that we're using are simple. They're easily customizable. Um, You don't have to have a lot of it on hand. You can produce it in a factory instead of having to grow it from a cell culture. I imagine that future, this far-off future, in which we have sort of live in this almost sci-fi type world where, you know, you can make any genetic manipulation you want, or your doctor can at least, you know, in the doctor's office, no no surgery, no nothing. Well, then I think about, so what am I doing today that's going to nudge the, the rock a little bit further up the hill in that direction. Where do I want things to be in 20 years, and what can I do to go there? We'll see how I do, right? I mean, I'm still just a postdoc. But I think it really, really helps to to think about, like, what's the, the crazy, crazy far-off, like, vision for what you're doing? Like, how, how could it totally change the world? And it's important to think about that when you're at the lab bench, you know, whether you're in a classroom lab at Bio1A or whether you're in my research lab, what am I doing to bring that about that long-term vision? It's so easy to lose track of where you're going in the day-to-day, especially as a scientist, because as researchers, we have our head is filled with innumerable minutia of our day-to-day experiments. It's just all we ever really think about. And sometimes you need to step back and be like, what am I really doing? That's a characteristic certainly of the most successful entrepreneurs and probably the most successful scientists as well. Well, Mark, you've helped us understand some very complicated ideas. I've been talking with Mark DeWitt. He is a biophysicist and a lab member of the Innovative Genomics Initiative here on campus at Lee Cushing Center for Genomic Engineering. Thanks again for being on this program and talking about a very difficult and complex subject of gene editing. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Method to the Madness. We'll be back again in two weeks at this same time.